you know, people understand what the business is trying to achieve. If they can understand how they can deliver value, then it, it can be a far more effective organisation. I'm Holly Ransom and welcome to Coffee Pods, a podcast devoted to fueling your difference. Here at Coffee Pods, we have a simple hypothesis that in the mere amount of time it takes to share a cup of coffee with someone, we can tap into a lifetime of experience. And that's exactly what we aim to do here at Coffee Pods, to give access to some incredible individuals who've marched the beat of their own drum and who are willing to share their advice, their highs, their lows, their insights in order to help give each and every one of us the toolkit and the inspiration to fuel the difference that we're trying to make in our own lives, communities and organisations. Today's Coffee Pod guest is a true titan of industry. I'm referring to Sam Walsh AO, the CEO of Rio Tinto from January 2013 to July 2016, which was the culmination of a 25-year career with the international miner. Uh, prior to his time as chief executive, he'd led a number of Rio Tinto's product groups, and before that, he'd started his career in the automotive industry, working for 20 years in senior leadership roles uh, with GM and Nissan Australia. As you'll come to see over the course of our conversation, though, Sam is also a huge believer in the role of business uh, in community and in society. He's a passionate supporter of a number of charity, community and business associations and even more passionate, if possible, about the arts, where he's been uh, made an honorary life member of the West Australian Chamber of Arts and Culture, patron of the West Australian State Theatre uh, and he's been appointed a trustee of the Royal Opera House Covent Garden Foundation. Sam's had an interesting role in a range of international uh, business forums such as APEC and the B20, and he was awarded a gold medal by the Australian Institute of Company Directors in 2012. This is a really special coffee pod for me. Sam gave me one of my first big opportunities when he hired me to come and work for him at Rio Tinto, and I've had the incredible privilege of being one of his mentees uh, for more than six years now. So this is a conversation that's sharing lessons I've learned from Sam over the years, some new gems that I hadn't, and a variety of his wisdom, experience, and insight on the world of business, what it takes to be a great leader, how we drive change within large organisations, and some of the variables of change that we need to be thinking about at a global business level. So without further ado, here's Sam. Thank you so much for making the time to do this. I'm so excited to actually have the opportunity to do this with you. I think it's going to be really fun because there's so many things that I've admired and learned from you over the years, and I'm very excited to be able to share them more broadly. <laughs> well, we'll see. We will see. Um, now, of course, I'll send you like a, a cu- copy of it so you can have final veto over anything. But really, the whole purpose of the, of the podcast is to want to open up the stories of people who've been able to be really successful in their field of endeavor and hopefully inspire people, not just with the, the stories and the motivation to get out and do whatever they might be driven by, but also through sharing the practical insights of how you've actually done what you've done. Um, any tips and tricks yep. that you've learned on the way? Mm-hmm. So if it's all right with you, we might dive straight in. I wanted to, to start where it all began, growing up in Brighton, and get a sense of what those early years uh, in Melbourne had on shaping you uh, and, I guess, the, the business person that you became. Okay. So I, I was uh, born the fourth child in... A, in uh, uh, a family of, of five children, mm-hmm. mum and dad, and uh, we were all very actively engaged in the community. 
So obviously uh, church. Yep. And, and that that sort of meant uh, singing in the church choir and serving and heaven knows what. But but also scouting. I, I w- was very involved in scouts and I went right through scouts, Cub Scouts, the Ventures, Rovers. Uh, and then ultimately I, I actually became a, a Cub Scout leader for 10 years whilst my two boys were going through. Nice. Um, so, and, and then there was a bit of school. School, school wasn't sort of a highly successful endeavour. Um, I think my interests were actually elsewhere mm-hmm. uh, and I, I tolerated school. Did you ever have the aim and the aspiration to sort of be, be a CEO or a leader from the get-go? I think I learned from an early day that uh, that being in charge actually meant that you could achieve a heck of a lot more. <laughs> and, and, and that no matter what I did, I, I actually rose to the top. So you know, I, I became head chorister or I became patrol leader or, or whatever um, in, in scouting. And... and I, I clearly wanted to join a uh, business. I clearly wanted to join a global company because I saw that that would give me uh, greater opportunity for, for growth and perhaps working offshore. Uh, and then once you start working, you realize, well, you know, hang on, um, I'm probably a little bit brighter than, than average. <laughs> I can actually get done. Mm-hmm. And being the boss actually means you can focus it and you can deliver much more. And, and I've always, through my life, I, I've always seemed to be put in a position where I, I, I do take charge. And, and you know, I think that's an element of, of uh, what, what I sort of picked up in later life, that there's some people who can deliver, who can make things happen, and there are other people who are along for the ride or they, they, they can't see the pathway to deliver value. Mm-hmm. And no matter what you're doing, whether, whether it's in a social scene or part of the arts or whatever, uh, the, the critical thing is, is, is actually delivery. And delivery is hard. Yeah. It, it, uh, time and time again, I, I've seen organisations reviewed, they come up with a fabulous strategy and, you know, it all sounds wonderful on paper, but nothing ever happens. And, and organisations actually need people who, who can sort of understand the plot, understand the strategy, and then sort of pull it apart and, and, and make it happen. And, and that's important. And I think, you know, part of my early life as, as a child growing up, you know, I, I could see that. I could see that uh, in the church. I could see it in, in scouting. Uh, as I say, uh, school school wasn't my great, greatest success, but um, that, that was fine. I, I sort of managed that. So tell me, the art of delivery, because I think that's something a lot of business leaders will resonate with hearing that, you know, it's easy to come up with the plan in the perfect whiteboard room or at the, the company offsite, but that piece around actually getting it done is a whole different story. Where did you cut your teeth in, in the art of delivery? What taught you a lot of, I guess, the ideas and principles you've applied over your career about how to get it, how to get ideas executed well and effectively? Yeah, I, mean, I think you pick it up progressively. Uh, certainly, scouting sort of helped me. 
um, if if there were uh, uh, skill building competitions, uh, one one was the Hoadley Hyde, which was was held in Victoria, and and you know there were teams competing against each other. And important as a team to to have what what you're going to do if you're, you're building a bridge or or getting over some hurdle or whatever, Having building a plan and, and and then providing that clarity to the team members, and then be very very focused on on delivering that that everybody knows what their task is, everybody understands that. You know, they've got to deliver quality. They're not have actually got to sort of hold everybody's weight and what have you. Uh, but but sort of providing people with the, the context, you know, communicating and engaging and involving people. Uh, that's that's what was well, what scouting was about. But it's all also what business is about. You know, if people understand what the business is trying to achieve, if they can understand how they can deliver value, then it, it can be a far more effective organisation. And what I'm hearing you say there is far less of the command and control and dictating, more that how do you get people engaged and excited and understanding how to add value in their way and in their role? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I, I mean... <laughs> Yeah, perhaps command and control sort of uh, works in in uh, a, a military organisation. Well, I, I suspect even that these days it, it's not as effective. But but certainly in a business sense, where where <laughs> people have got their own minds, people have, <laughs> have uh, you know, got got lots of sort of interests and what have you. You, you, you can't, if I take Rio Tinto when I took over as chief executive, mm-hmm. 65,000 people and you know, from my office I, I, I didn't have a loud hailer loud enough to, to actually <laughs> be able to order 65,000 people. Um, so you've got to provide the context, you've got to communicate, you've got to provide feedback. You know, people have got to understand you know, how they they can can actually deliver value rather than just turning up to work and going through the motions and you know sort of clocking off at the end of the day. Um, you know, I mean, it, it sounds incredibly trite. It sounds very simple. You know, when when I took over at Rio, I, I said that I wanted people to act as owners because I'd noticed that that uh, you know, in a large organisation, people are disconnected mm. from shareholders. They're disconnected from the concept of, you know, what what adds value and what doesn't add value. Um, it, it it was incredibly trite, but it worked. Incidentally, thirty eight percent of the employees were already shareholders, so they were already owners. Mm. So you know, it wasn't a concept that was sort of beyond people's reach. Then I said I wanted you to to spend money as if it was your own, and again, incredibly trite, simple. You know, you, you can say cliche even. But it worked. Yeah. You know, time and time again, I'd, I'd be visiting remote sites and somebody would say, well, we, we heard you say this or we read it and, you know, it, it really resonates. And there's this project that we're working on and it, it's not going to work. We're, we're, we decided we're not going to do it. And that was fantastic because you've, you've then got people sort of actively involved in the business. They're feeling... Uh, engaged and, and uh, you know, understanding how they can actually add value. Mm. Yeah, and that direct involvement in the end outcome or, or, you know, some direct involvement in the end outcome themselves obviously changes the the motivation and, and the understanding of the drivers that play a role in delivering the end outcome as well. 
No, e- exactly. And then the next part of it is is providing feedback as to you know, how on earth everything is going. And and uh, you know, due, due to increased sort of regulation and what have you, you know, organisations are, are worried about insider trading and a whole raft of things. Mm. Um, I think a lot of that's very naive and. Um, my friend Alan Mullally, who was the CEO of Ford, who was going through a similar turnaround as I was, we both realised that you know, the accountants are lovely people, but they were actually restricting progress because they weren't allowing you to actually provide the feedback as to, well, how did last month go? Or how did last week go? Or how, how are we going on this project? Um, people want to know, and, and if they know how it's heading, then they can do something about it. Absolutely. I think that piece around transparency is so important. And the other thing I wanted to ask you on that, you know, you you come into an organisation where you're in charge of 65,000 people, as you said, you're leading projects of quite an incredible mix of how to actually communicate effectively across that that sort of reach because it's an incredible uh, breadth of of individuals that you've got to try and, and get your message out to. That's not easy in a noisy world. No, no, it's not. And I, I, I always act on the basis that, that uh, my direct team, I would give them the knowledge that I had um, about the business. You know, if you want people to uh, make decisions as if they were you, and if you want to empower them to do that, then you've actually got to physically give them all the context. Mm-hmm. So I, I had a, a team of direct reports who actually were as up to speed as I was as to how the business was was travelling. And then, of course, uh, they would uh, cascade that through the organisation. Not not all of it. An important part of it uh, was was actually giving people line of sight, as I said, in relation to how the business was going. But but also line of sight in in terms of of, uh, the company's reward systems. And importantly, the, the the measures, the KPIs for incentives, which went right through the organisation, were, were actually well, based on the company's plan and, and obviously based on my KPIs, mm-hmm. but cascaded down to a level so that people could understand what's important in their job in, in terms of, of them delivering their part uh, of the company's budget or, or plan for the next year. And, and then obviously providing them with, with feedback as to how they're going against it. I mean, as I say, it all sounds incredibly simple. It, it sounds like how you would run a, a business, you know, if, if it was a, a, a local supermarket or, or whatever, but the same principles apply to a very large business. People want to actually understand you know, what's happening in a business. They want to understand how they fit in and, and they're, they're part of it. They want to understand how how they can help. And, and they do want to help. You know, people are very proud of, of uh, companies that they work for and they want to see the business succeed because they know that that'll help them succeed. I love that. And I think it's it, it, it's interesting because in this age of buzzwords where we can throw around terms quite frequently and we get things that become the fad, it's easy to forget that more often than not, exactly what you're saying, it's these simple fundamentals done well consistently that distinguishes a, a great business out from the pack. No, that's exactly right. It, 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 you, you get a disconnect 
at times when the business gets larger and, and uh, you know, pe- people think that busy work is, is actually you know, delivering the value. That's what it's all about. And, and you know, sometimes there's actually less work, uh, but more focused work uh, is actually going to deliver the value. Now, it, it's a two-way street. It, it, it's sort of not all sort of the, the company designating sort of what the focus should be and what have you. I mean, the company's got to do their share Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of things like health and safety and things things like uh, environmental performance and things like uh, community engagement. As I say, employees are, are... I'm proud of their company. Employees are uh, a subset uh, of a community. And the sort of things that I've just talked about, you know, they're important to them. Therefore, they must be important to the company. Mm. And the company's got to be seen to be a, a caring, engaged and, and uh, involved company. So you know, whilst at the same time we, we turned the company around financially, we, we also delivered the best safety that the organisation has, has ever had, uh, measured by all injury frequency rate. Uh, we reduced our greenhouse gas uh, over eight years by 28%. Now, there, there are not too many companies who, who can actually say that. Mm. And in terms of, of community engagement, there were 2,800 projects across the 30 countries we operate. That's incredible. You know, focusing on, on you know, the things that, that were important to, you know, to the local community. Um, and, and all of that's important. And it, it wasn't just writing checks. It, it was actually, you know, people going out and and, uh, and, and helping develop business plans or, or, you know, helping with business knowledge and experience or, 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 or just sort of uh, assisting to make things happen. And, you know, that, that's a very powerful force as well because pe- people operating in a business don't actually realise the value that they can bring mm. to an arts organisation or a community or a charity or, or whatever. But if you want to truly be part of the community, then you need to physically be part of the community. So, for example, when I, I was running Iron Ore uh, in, in Perth, I was involved in a whole raft of activities. Uh, I, I was uh, chair of the State Theatre. I formed the Chamber of the Arts. I was chair of the Australian Business Arts Foundation. I was president of the Boy Scouts. I was patron of the State Library. Uh, I was a lay canon at the uh, cathedral and a whole raft of other things. And all of it was interlinked. Mm. The, the absolutely fascinating thing that I didn't realise that was going on was that <clears throat> this was preparing me uh, to actually become a CEO. Hmm. My CEOs <laughs> need to focus on 10,000 things at the one time. So they need, need to be able to deal with a whole lot of different, diverse uh, activities at once. And, and that was actually what I was doing as head of iron ore with all of these community engagements. Uh, I was actually <laughs> uh, unaware that preparing myself to become a CEO. 
I love that as a stepping stone. I know it's something you've advised me and you've advised a lot of people that have worked with you over the journey to sort of get involved in the community, take on leadership roles, manage projects, get involved in initiatives as a as a sort of stepping stone, but also something that runs in parallel to what you're doing in corporate world and an incredible opportunity to add value to the community, but also to build a, a new set of skills and a deeper understanding of, of how to lead. That's exactly right. I, if you're you know, a young graduate or, or someone junior in an organisation, some of these community organisations are the best possible way you can see how an organisation actually works because they're all microcosms of, of sort of larger entities. You know, they, they've all got you know, financial challenges. They've mm-hmm. all got people in They've all got equipment or, or whatever they're doing. We've talked about a few uh, stakeholder exactly. issues. And, and uh, by, you know, a young person or not so young person joining organisations like this and taking an active role, then they're actually developing themselves, they're developing their skills and they're getting to the big picture of, ah, that's what Sam or that's what uh, the CEO is, is trying to do and, and this is why you know, he or she is trying to achieve it this way. I think it's really interesting too because, you know, you've spent uh, 25 years at Rio Tinto and you must have seen an incredible transformation in terms of the attitude towards business's role in the community over that period because it's absolutely something that typified your leadership at Rio Tinto. You were so actively engaged and I think you you really set a bar in many ways of what it means to be a corporately corporate responsible um, citizen in that regard. But that must have been very different to sort of the, the attitudes and back behaviours that you would have seen early in your careers from a lot of corporate culture? I, I think that's right. And, and uh, I remember when I first uh, joined Iron Ore, we ran a survey uh, with, with uh, community opinion leaders uh, about Rio Tinto, about the company. And, and the most vivid thing that I remember is that the survey came back and and said that uh, the senior management of Rio Tinto were the faceless men in dark suits. <laughs> I thought it was an absolute classic because we weren't engaged in the community. We weren't involved. You know, we tended to be anonymous. We tended to sort of sit behind our desks and, and sort of, you know, mastermind things uh, from afar, not physically uh, going out and, and sort of being engaged in the community, being engaged with government and and, and being a regular member of, of, of society. So we changed that uh, drastically in terms of, yeah, it was a gradual process, but it was a very effective process in in terms of of people understanding. Well, we are human. We are we are people, and and you know, by the way, we 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 are tr- seriously trying to do the right thing. It's interesting. I know you're a man of great faith. That's something we have in common, you know, our, our shared faith. And you place a lot of importance on ethics and values. I'm interested what you think of sort of what's been termed the trust crisis, crisis that's going on between institutions and the general public and the corporate world and the everyday person. What do you make of sort of where we're at in 2017 with with really low levels of trust and, and I guess, concern coming from a lot of people about how leaders are leading different organisations? Yeah, look, I think that the, 
it, there was a time when organisations misinterpreted you know, what what their the right uh, to to uh, to run a business. What what it was actually all about. Um, you know, pe- people people would look at the law and and they would physically act uh, according to what was legal, rather than you know what what is the right thing uh, to do. I mean, I can remember very vividly, if if you go back to the Marbo judgment and and, uh, Rio Tinto and and other mining companies' relationship uh, with with the Aborigines and and Torres Strait Islanders. And it was confrontation. It it was so incredibly legal, uh, it didn't matter. And uh, one of my predecessors, uh, Leon Davis, came out in 1994 with, with uh, a very controversial statement that, that Rio Tinto will stop fighting native title uh, in the courts and will sit down under gum trees uh, by, by uh, dry creek beds and, and actually talk and discuss and work through the issues. Mm. And quite frankly, it was a far, far more effective process than, than had we tried to resolve um, the, these issues physically, uh, you know, in, in a court of law. You know, it would have taken 10, 15, 20 years to resolve it. Uh, but sitting down and, and uh, talking through the issues and recognising what was actually physically right, the right thing to do, mm. um, that, that actually moved the business uh, forward and, and uh, enabled new projects, new mines, new developments to take place at, at a much faster rate than, than had it physically just been, been the legal process. One yeah, of the... If I think of... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 you go. If you think of uh, you know, our decision regarding Mitchell Plateau, hmm. Mitchell Plateau is, is uh, a Borks, Borksite uh, 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 plateau and uh, Rio Tinto and Alcoa uh, had the mining rights to, to mine this plateau. It was 20 kilometres uh, from the iconic Mitchell Falls. It, it was full of Guion Guion art uh, in the rocky outcrops. There was uh, very rare fauna, very rare uh, flora, and and it, it, it was an issue where I, I happened to visit on holidays, and I came to the conclusion that you know, this this is not a mine that should be developed. Bauxite mining is very evasive. You you you, you mine over a very very large area, um, quite shallow, but but you disturb huge acres of, of land. Mm. And uh, uh, we made we made the decision that we'd actually hand uh, the Mitchell Plateau deposit back to government, but on the condition that nobody else could develop it. Now this is the first time this had ever happened, and and uh, you can say, well, legally you had the right to develop it. Well, legally we did, morally we did not. Mm. Ethically we did. And, uh, you know, to my great joy, both Rio and Alcoa agreed that, that we should hand the deposit back. It took five years, but it, it's now co-joined to three other national parks and has created the largest national park in Australia. That's incredible. And that was the right, right thing to do. 
Was it uh, legally driven? No, not at all. But, but it was, you know, with Rio and Alcoa as, as being responsible members of the community, it, it, it was the right thing to do. You've touched on kind of two things there. One, Leon's comment around shifting the, the practice away from dealing with things legalistically to sitting under gum trees and your comment earlier about coming into Iron Ore and that review saying, okay, they're, they're faceless men in suits and going, okay, we need to change our approach. We need to build relationships and be uh, more directly engaging with the people that we're talking to, both of which suggest, you know, significant cultural shifts internally to change the, the behaviours and attitudes of the people that are working in the organisation. Um, I'm intrigued for what you've learned about how to do that within an organisation as, as big as Rio. Um, what does it take to get culture to head in a new direction? Well, it, it is a function of, of communication engagement. It, 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 it's about uh, providing consistent messages. It, it, it's about uh, having everybody on board, every, everybody at every level in the organisation. Uh, understanding you know, what you're doing and why you're doing it, and everybody reinforcing and, and uh, you know emphasising that well, this this is why we're doing this. The other thing is, you know, if it if it's a right and natural thing to do, you know, to care about uh, employees, to to be engaged in the community. To make money for your shareholders. I mean, if it's if it's things like this that, that you know ultimately are, are you know right and proper, then it it makes it far easier for people to accept to to sign up and say, yeah, look, I get that. Um, yeah, that, that's what we ought to be doing. And, and that way, you 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 are re- refocusing. Of course, it you know. I had to be out and about. I had I had to be travelling. I, I needed to be communicating. Um, I, I needed to be uh, uh, speaking at, at things. Um, all of that was important in, in terms of, of getting a message across uh, to the broad organisation. But people are very interested, and, and uh, it, it was actually amazing. Um, you know, as I travel around, people would say, well, you know, I saw the speech that you made at so-and-so or whatever. I mean, social media is a great and wonderful thing, <laughs> as I'm sure this podcast will be. And, and uh, you know, it, it allows you to communicate much, much more effectively than you ever could in, in the past. Mm. We did a sur- survey in Iron Ore, and I think 95% of employees had access uh, to, to some sort of mobile device. I mean, that, that's incredible when you think of people living in, in reasonably remote areas. Of course, we put in coax cables so that they did have Wi-Fi and they did have uh, connectivity. But, but uh, you know, it, it, it enables you to do things that you probably couldn't do 25 years ago. Speaking of doing things you couldn't do 25 years ago, I'd say one of the things that characterised your leadership at Rio was innovation. Things like Autonomous Hall and these incredible changes to the the mining process full stop. I want to get a sense of how you actually, um, what you did from a a standpoint as a leader to find the inspiration and the stimulation that allowed you to drive that sort of innovation. Where did you go and study? What did you do to, I guess, get out of the bubble that you can sometimes get trapped in in your own company and industry and draw so widely from other sectors other parts of the world to to do such dramatic innovation 
Yeah, I, I spent 20 years in the car industry in manufacturing, uh, both at, at GM, uh, Holden, and and at Nissan, and, and I clearly understood there the it's a very very competitive industry. Oh, I bet. <laughs> margins, margins are very thin, and I learned there that you know a critical. Part of that business was actually innovation and, and technology. You know, it, it was the styling of the vehicles, it was the features in the car, it was the way that you made them, it was the quality of the vehicle, and so on. And and joining uh, Rio, uh, I visited uh, a mine called Tom Price, and, and uh, they gave me a, a little red book that described the life of, of this Kaiser engineer. Tom Price that the mine was named after and the, the mine talked the, the book talked about uh, uh, some technology that had, that had come into the, the mining company and it was actually the introduction of conveyors uh, it was technology that was picked up from, from uh, manufacturing and uh, put into effect in mining well this happened in, in 1920 which sort of sounds terrific Except for the fact that manufacturing was using conveyors in the 1890s. <laughs> so uh, you could say that mining were, were actually uh, slow adapters or adopters. So, so, I mean, it was with that uh, background you know, that, that I joined Rio and, and I saw that there are a whole raft of things that, that had been used in, in manufacturing that... that uh, um, mining didn't seem to think that it was appropriate or relevant or, or whatever. You know, I can remember uh, having conversation about uh, uh, Six Sigma, which, which was sort of introduced by uh, Toyota in, in the Toyota production system, but then picked up by General Electric and Motorola and, and others. And I remember talking to, to a senior guy at, at, at Rio about rolling out Lean Six Sigma at Rio, and, and uh, this chap says, "Well, no, our business is different to manufacturing. You know, we it it, it wouldn't uh, apply to to what we're doing. We we're not not in a factory." And you know, my response was, "Oh, so we don't have any variation? Uh, a haul truck starting ore always travels at the same speed with the same time with the same load with you know every, everything uh, is is." Uh, standardized and and uh, every, everything is identical and he said well no no of course not you know trucks have different loads on them and they travel at different speeds you know take different times and and I said well you, you're just describing variation and you're describing the opportunity with six, six Sigma to actually reduce that variation and, and to standardize the job and Rio rolled out Six Sigma, you know, across the entire company. Um, I mean, that that was obviously a, a sort of soft technology. Mm-hmm. When I took over operations at, at Iron Ore, I, I took a team to the US to, to look at, at uh, technology because I was very conscious that you know, if you don't innovate, then you're going to stagnate and you're going to go backwards. And, and uh, but I, I said we deliberately don't want to visit any mining sites. We, we want to visit aerospace, we want to visit oil and gas, we want to go to a university, we want to, to see what's happening in the computer industry. And, and that's exactly what we did. And it opened our eyes up 
to what was happening in agriculture, what was happening in manufacturing, aerospace, oil and gas, and a lot of the things that that, uh, Rio and other mining companies are doing today actually were were developed from that visit and, and from the observations that were made not not in what other mining companies are doing, but what other manufacturing and, and agriculture and service companies are doing. Well, the fascinating thing, Rio is, is uh, rolling out the automated train. And, and uh, you know, it is a big deal. It will be the first time that a heavy haul railway has, has been automated. But the Shinkansens in Japan automated trains started 50 years ago wow <laughs> so like the like the conveyor uh it, it may be leading edge in mining but it's certainly not leading edge in, in terms of, of the world i wanted to ask you because i think this is what a lot of businesses are grappling with at the moment particularly because all we're talking about is this disruption and innovation and the need to change is this struggle uh to, to make that work, to land new innovation and new ways of doing things with inside large existing business as usual operations or, or businesses full stop. What advice do you have for them based on the period of um, time you spent at Rio doing things like the Autonomous Hall Project on how you can lead that sort of change and innovation to process within a big organisation? Yeah, just as I said, uh, implementing strategic plans is, is difficult. Implementing technology is seriously difficult. <laughs> and you've actually physically got to, to, to sort of help people go, go through the process. You need to have a dedicated team of experts who are actually going to help you manage the change. I saw it in the car industry that, that uh, you know, there, there was technology, particularly when I was at, at Nissan, and to make it succeed, they'd fly in a team from Japan who, who had developed a new paint system or a new robotized welding system or whatever, and, and that enabled you to, to pick up the, the technology. It, it, it's not so much... Well, it's like giving somebody a laptop and and, and then not saying, well, I'll I'll now show you how it works and hoping that somebody can can pick up the the laptop, somehow start it going and and learn how all the features operate. Um, You may pick up sort of 5% of it. You certainly won't pick up 100% of it. Mm. And for technology to be successful, you need to actually pick up 100% of it. You need need to understand how it all comes together, how it actually physically delivers the, the, the value. So recognising that, that uh, technology transfer is, is hard, it, it's ensuring that, that you actually create a process, expertise and, and assistance and what have you, that that will actually enable you to to roll that out. I wanted to ask you about when you took over the the top job, um, because I think all of us like to hope that when we find ourselves in the ultimate position of leadership, that the sun's going to be, you know, nice and rosy and everything's going to be great. But it's publicly acknowledged you took over Rio at a really challenging time and you guided the company through a pretty volatile economic environment. Talk us through kind of landing in that top job and how you framed up the strategy and approach that you took um, to be able to, to, to 
really settle things down and, and guide the company in, in that positive direction? Yeah, I, I had the advantage of that uh, the company has seriously good people. It, it also had seriously good systems. When you don't run a company for 140 years uh, without sort of learning the basics of, of what you're doing, mm. and a lot of the lot of the systems that had actually been diluted over time, people not actually understanding how it all connected, how it all worked and how it all delivered value. I, I am very much a, a team player. I, I believe in taking advantage of the, of the strengths and skills and intellect of everybody within an organisation. And and uh, what, what had happened at Rio was that, that the organisation really uh, were, were, were actually relying on the CEO to, to make all the calls without actually providing him with the information that he needed to have to physically do that. So I, I went back and, and uh, it, it was very clear to me from day one what, what I actually physically needed to do because I saw that you know, many, of the, many of the things were totally dysfunctional. They, they, they just weren't physically operating the, the way that, that uh, they need. In terms of investment decisions, in terms of, of forecasting, in terms of physically how you ran the business, in terms of how you provided feedback uh, to, to the organisation, when all of these things were, were, were totally dysfunctional and, and totally disconnected. You know, forecasting, for example, you know, the company was operating off three monthly forecasts in a very volatile environment. <laughs> 10 minutes after you developed the forecast, it was irrelevant. <laughs> but the organisation was still still locked in to delivering a, an outdated forecast. But the company was being run uh, for, for um, net earnings, you know, P&L. Well, that's terrific, but all the government regulatory authorities had, had changed so much the, the rules and regulations as to how you should account that, that, that suddenly it, it doesn't become a measure of how the business is, is physically operating. Mm. Again, it sounds trite, but, but you know, if you go back to your, your sort of local supermarket, you're actually better to operate from cash, managing cash rather than to, to earnings. Because I, you know, with the accruals and depreciation and a whole raft of, of uh, other artificial constraints that are put on earnings, it doesn't actually give you the feeling of, of well, is the business healthy or not? Mm. Um, I, I half jokingly said, well, you know, cash doesn't lie, but it, it's absolutely true. You, you either have the cash or you don't have the cash. And, and that was important also because there are a raft of other things that, that, that are uh, not directly lined up to P&L. So, for example, your investment capital, your working capital, you know, yes, yes, they're an entry in, in terms of uh, interest uh, payable, uh, given that you're funding it through debt, but, but uh, it, it's not as direct as, as, uh, as, as having the business measured for cash. And if you want to spend a billion dollars on something, well, you know, you better work out how you're going to actually physically fund that. It was quite funny when I, I, I said that I wanted to move to cash. 
the, the accountant said, well, you know, we can't actually do that. The systems don't, don't actually allow it. And, <laughs> and, you know, it's too hard. And, and I said, well, have a look at iron ore. You know, iron ore is 80% of the earnings and we've been running for cash there for seven years. But if you think it, it's too hard for for employees to understand, then then please explain to me how they run their, their personal lives. Um, do, do they accrue their expenditure? Do they depreciate their house? Or, or do they actually run their lives for cash? And, you know, they, they know that if they buy a, a, a new computer or buy a, a, a new outfit, then they better have the cash somewhere or, or the uh, the opportunity to to, uh, to borrow to actually pay for it. And if you don't, then you actually delay that transaction. And that's what you actually need to do in a company as well. If, if, you, if you don't have that billion dollars, well, guess what? You shouldn't be proceeding with the project. <laughs> um, things like the, in terms of investments, you know, the, the, the company uh, ran on the basis, well, if a project has a net present value of, of greater than zero, then it's going to be a good project. It's actually going to deliver value. Mm. But again, it, it, you needed to actually set parameters uh, around that, that that actually took into account that some projects are good and some projects are not so good. And if you create a hurdle uh, rate of an internal rate, rate of return of, say, 15%, then it actually gives you the leeway for the projects that are marginal, the projects that are not so good. Incidentally, I, I looked at projects over the previous 10 years, and the conclusion that we came to with that work was good projects are always good projects and, and they'll always succeed and by the way they've probably got an IRR of you know, 20% or 25% or even more. Marginal projects will always be marginal and most likely they'll become bad projects. Why is that? Well they've been marginal so, so people took heroic assumptions about mm. cost or or, you know, let, let's uh, slim down the capital by 20% or let's, you know, do I don't know what that may be delivered or may not be delivered and, and hence it turns a marginal project in, into a lousy project. So looking at things like hurdle rates and, and creating a, a, a target for projects to succeed, it not only helped you uh, allocate scarce capital it actually meant that, that you didn't have the same number of projects failing. In fact, you didn't have any projects failing. So, I mean, things like that were important in, in terms of of redefining to the organisation what would actually deliver value and, and, and what wouldn't. Debt, debt was a very important issue for, for Rio. You know, the, the debt uh, blew out to $22 billion and, quite frankly, you know, it was a company living beyond its means. Mm. But because you weren't measuring the company by cash, it, it was sort of, oh, well, that's a balance sheet sort of item. You know, we look at look at that, you know, at, at uh, the half year and full year. Um, it needed to be in everybody's face. I imagine with that, there's a lot of tough conversations and there's certainly a lot of tough decisions to be made. It, 
I'm interested because something that was always said about you uh, in the in the Rio grapevine, I guess as I'd call it, was that you were incredibly calm under pressure. You felt very comfortable or always behaved very comfortably in those sorts of high-pressure situations. I'm intrigued as to whether that's honed by practice and through exposure to high-pressure environments, particularly I know over your automotive days you've, you've spoken a lot about that with me. Or did you do you have particular strategies for how you manage and work your way through through high stress and high pressure situations. Yeah, I, I had I had the advantage of having a very high stress job very early in my career. I was working uh, at, at uh, Buick in in Flint, and uh, the, the first job that I got there was an expediter. Uh, the, the chap who had the job uh, the day before me uh, went off with a heart attack, <laughs> and uh, I. I, I picked up uh, his his deck, and I mean it, it was a disaster. That was an incredibly stressful job, and I've never had any job sort of after that that that, that has been as stressful. Now, yeah, you know, I think it was because of the measure of experience that I had, and you know, I I, I just arrived in in a, a strange new place, and you know, I was ringing people in in. Uh, Locations where I had no idea where they where they were, how far they were from the plant, or whatever. But it actually taught me that that you know you just you divide the problem up, you work through it, you focus on the critical elements. There there are other parts that uh, you you don't need to worry about. You, you learn that it's a team effort. Uh, I can remember it at uh, with with one shortage, I had to hire a jet. Well, when I've been working at VM in Australia, I wasn't even able to hire a taxi, let alone hire a jet. Um, but, but you learn that, that uh, you know, there are other people in traffic and logistics who can help you uh, organise that and, and manage it and walk the plane in, into, uh, into the local airport and what have you. Um, and quite frankly, you know, with, within a couple of days, I was right on top of that. It's it's the same when you're a CEO, or same when you're in a, in a senior role. Every every day at Rio, when I was CEO, something something dreadful would happen somewhere. Um, you know, if you're operating in 30 countries with 65,000 people, um, you know, somewhere some government would do something strange, or you know. That there'd be some physical breakdown, or there'd be some dreadful weather event, or, or whatever, and <laughs> you almost set your watch by it, knowing that, that sometime during the day something would happen. The important thing is is that you know you're operating with a team, and, and uh, yes, you you can give direction or you know provide additional expenditure if that needs to happen or whatever. Um, but then you learn that, that, well, you've got to delegate it and you've actually got to walk away because you've got a job to do and your job is, is uh, more focused on, on the strategy, mm. <laughs> being ambassador at large and what have you, but more focused on strategy rather than, than physically uh, being the chief firefighter in the business. You know, it, it's also important that, that people understand that at different levels, people actually physically do different work. If, if you're running uh, your role as a supervisor of, of a facility, 
Well, the likelihood is you're going to be focused on what's, what's happening today. Um, if you're the superintendent, then you'll be focused on sort of what, what's happening this week or this month. If you're the manager of the operation, well, you're going to be focused on a year. And as you go up the organisation, well, you want, you want to have a CEO who, who is actually focusing on positioning the business uh, five years out, 10 years out, 20 years out. Uh, I can remember when I was running iron ore and, and uh, we had a mine plan that went out to, to 2070. And, mm-hmm. and people would say, well, you know, that that's bizarre. But if you backtrack from that, there's a whole raft of things that need to happen in terms of infrastructure and facilities and development and more detailed exploration and what, what have you, that actually has to happen before you get to 2070. And I, I knew that if all of that work sort of wasn't put in place and a plan developed, we get to 2070 and the guy running the show or lady would, would not thank me for what I'd done sort of back in, in 2015. It's an incredible long-term horizon. I love that. Well, well, it is, but mining is long-term. Yes. Mining, you know, if, if you think about it, if, if you're not continuing to explore, sooner or later you're, you're actually going to run out of ore. You're going to run out of dirt. I think that's a great philosophy for life at large. If you're not continuing to explore, you at some point that's going to run out. It's probably not just for good mining. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And and, people need to have a a long-term view in terms of of how they they manage their lives. People in an organisation think that that, uh, there's a magic fairy who looks after their career and and (laughs) ensures that that, uh, they they get the experience that they need, ensure that they fill the gaps in their career, whether it be sort of lack of accounting knowledge or marketing or HR or, or whatever. Um, you, you've actually got to, to recognise what those gaps are and you've got to physically uh, fill those gaps. Um, you, you need to reinvent yourself. And, uh, you know, that, that's incredibly important. Or, you know, if you don't reinvent yourself, well, guess what? You're going to be doing exactly what you're currently doing for the rest of your life. Yeah. So, I mean, that that idea of knocking down the door, asking for opportunities, putting yourself forward, being proactive as opposed to passive in your career. Yeah, no, all all of that's important. It's actually important uh, uh, when you retire. Uh, Oh, yeah, we've been having this chat a bit over the last 12, 18 months, haven't we? That's right. It's important to to reinvent yourself. And and, uh, I was determined. Having retired, I I would not be doing one thing that I was doing previously. I I would be taking up different roles, different involvements, um, and it works like a charm. I mean, it's incredibly stimulating, it's incredibly rewarding. And, and by the way, it means that uh, you know the people in the organisations that you used to be part of, well, they're left to, to continue to do to do their thing, to do their best, without you actually interfering or looking over their shoulder. Well, that's a good point. I'm convinced you're busier than you've ever been, actually. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly it's a very diverse life. 
I wanted and, to uh, ask you, though, on, on the whole busyness piece, because I think it's a really interesting part. I can't quite remember the stat. You'll have to remind me. But I know being the meticulous note taker that you are, you'd kept notes of all of your flights over the years. What was the total number of, I think it was years, that you've spent on a plane in your career? Yeah. Um, in in uh, a 20-year period, I... I I had spent seven years away from from my base, mm-hmm. uh, and I'd spent one year in a plane. Wow, that's an incredible travel volume. I wanted to ask about something you touched on much earlier in our chat, but just that ease of getting lost in the busyness and how it is you actually manage yourself and continue to stay nourished and energised and effective in the way that you, um, I guess, allocate your time, but also make sure that you're adequately making sure, you know, you're, you're back again to fight another day tomorrow. What have you picked up about how to manage and juggle that over your career? Well, importantly, diary management is is a critical part of it. I mean, you can fall for the trap that thinking that this busy work is is where the value is added. Um, some of it is, but but uh, more importantly, it's during your discretionary time that you actually have time to think about what you're doing, to think about uh, what what long-term plans should be, to develop strategy, um, to to step back and and look at what you're doing and uh, are you actually uh, achieving. So in, in your in your daily life, you need time to, to physically think about what you're doing. Um, right, so do you right have like a that. reflection period at the end of a day or how did you kind of approach that? Yeah, well, I'm either at the end of the day or, or, or during the day. Mm-hmm. But, but it, it, if I look at my life now, I, I'm engaged in a whole raft of things. Um, in the arts, in charity, uh, in, in, in terms of, of a bit of work with government, uh, a bit of commercial work, some work with the church. Importantly, it, it's very diverse, so it, it's it's very interesting. Also, importantly, is is you know I'm a great believer that if you've got a month to do something, then it'll probably take you the whole month to to, to sort of do it. If you've got a day to do it, well, it takes a day. If you've got an hour to do it. So, importantly, in terms of the things I'm doing now, mm-hmm. uh, because of, of the diversity of what I'm doing, it, it means that I'm not actually overdoing what I'm doing because I've got non-executive roles. I, I, I am not physically uh, an operating executive anymore. So I'm offering advice. I'm, I'm offering wise counsel. I'm, I'm helping in governance. I'm helping in, in development of strategy and policy. But importantly, I, I'm not overdoing it. Uh, I, I am uh, guiding people without actually doing it for them. Mm. And and that's physically uh, important. It's important in terms of how you manage your life. But it's important in terms of how you add value um, yourself. Absolutely. And I wanted to ask you, I've got to give you the opportunity to, to get on uh, the, the soapbox and have your say because I know you're incredibly passionate about the global economy and we had the privilege of 
getting to collaborate a little bit during the G20 in Australia in 2014, but you've been involved in the B20 and APEC for years and you've had a very active role in both of those agendas. If you were given licence to sort of control and set the agenda on those sorts of international economic forums, what would you be pushing to change? What do you think we're not talking about enough or we need to be doing more on? Yeah, look, I've just been to APEC in, in Da Nang in Vietnam and, and uh, I participated in the CEO's forum there. I mean, APEC has achieved a great deal uh, and importantly, it's, it's aligned 21 countries uh, on, a, on the same economic platform. Trade is awfully important. I mean, trade is... is uh, important for uh, growth, for optimization of, of uh, input and, and output costs. It's important for standard living. It's important for, for bringing people out of poverty. And uh, uh, clearly, for me, that's an important issue. And I believe that, that a solution to a lot of economic issues is, is actually freeing up trade and allowing people to concentrate on the things that they're good at mm. and buying in the things that they're not so good at. Uh, infrastructure is, is uh, an important um, issue and, and the world has a critical shortage of infrastructure and a lot of ageing uh, infrastructure. And, and again, if, if you, you want to improve standard of living, if you want to reduce uh, costs of doing things, then you actually need to improve that. I forget the figure for the amount of food that is wasted in the world because of poor infrastructure, for poor, poor transportation networks, you know, lack of refrigeration and uh, whatever. But, but it's actually huge. And if you think that you know, there, there are hundreds of millions of people who, who are living at the poverty level or, or worse, but the world is already producing the, the food that they need, but so much of it is, is actually destroyed uh, in, in getting it to market. So infrastructure is another important element. I, mm. I think regulation, you know, governments see that, that you know, greater regulation is, is a way of, of sort of controlling things and, and uh, try, trying to ensure that you know, there won't, won't be another global financial crisis or Asian financial crisis or whatever. Um, no, they're partly correct, but unfortunately, the, the world is a funny place and nothing ever happens exactly as it happened last time. Uh, all of, of the parameters are different and there, there is no actual playbook. You, you've got to be highly responsive in terms of how you respond. But, but the government has over-regulated um, segments of the economy. Certainly there's a huge amount of money that's trapped in the banking system that, that could be actually freed up to, to go into projects to actually make the world a better place. Um, there, there are critical issues in, in developing countries in, in relation to bribery and corruption. And, and uh, again, APEC and, and B20 has, has done a lot of work in, in that area uh, because, quite frankly, uh, you, you've got countries with enormous promise not taking advantage of it 
because of the corruption, is actually stopping the the right operators from developing projects uh, and and uh, physically uh, preventing projects from actually coming to pass. Um, it, it's uh, you know pe- people are, are winning projects because they're bribing government officials ra- rather than mm. winning projects because they're the logical and rational developer of a project and, and they'll physically uh, uh, bring it to fruition. So there's a raft of, of things that that, uh, that APEC and, and uh, B20 are focused on. I, I, I'm a huge believer that it's actually government set the scene and it's actually business that develop and create the jobs. It's government, it's business that create the uh, investments and and, uh, uh, all of the things that are actually needed to make an economy work. And uh, it's incredibly important that that, uh, governments understand the role in in terms of facilitating opportunities for business and also so important too that business leaders like yourself are in dialogue with governments and that are thinking about sort of the the greater economic structures and systems at play not just the the things that optimize conditions for your own business um, those broader discussions around trade and infrastructure at large and how we do that better across the globe for a variety of reasons Um, you know that two-way dialogue is so critical yeah no that's exactly right I mean, the business business must engage uh, with, with with government so that you actually can create the environment where where um, the investment will happen, the jobs will be created, the communities will become a better place. You know, pe- people people think and have the wrong idea that all businesses are focused on on uh, you know, the almighty dollar. Um, good businesses actually have uh, a balance uh, between all of the things that, that governments and communities are, are actually interested in and, and want. Sam, I want to ask two final questions before we close that we like to ask everyone. Uh, the first one is for those who are leaders, emerging leaders, people that are looking out at their career and going, how is it that I have this sort of career and rise to the sort of heights uh, within my organisation or grow my business to the sort of scale of something you've run and led? What's the best bit of advice that you'd give them for their career? Get a mentor who's going to challenge you. Uh, have, have somebody that... that uh, knows enough about what you're doing to actually provide you advice and guidance and then hold your feet to the fire. I mean, I, I as CEO of Rio, I, I had a mentor and uh, he was incredibly important in terms of stretching my thinking, in terms of holding my feet to the fire. Uh, and he actually became a very, very good friend. I love that. And I was chuckling because you've very much been that mentor for me for, well, almost as long as my career is run for. And I'm very, very grateful (laughs) for that. And I I couldn't be a more uh, stronger proponent of that piece of advice uh, that you just shared. And the final thing I wanted to ask for those who are listening today, what what call to action would you give them? If you could motivate them to do something, what, what would it be? 
I think the call to action would be to have more confidence uh, in, in yourself, more confidence in, in uh, your judgment, more confidence in, in the skills that, that you bring. And, and uh, you know, extend yourself, push the envelope. I've, I've talked before about uh, everybody has a, an authority level. Uh, and, and it's a range, and, and people tend to operate at, at the lower level of their authority. They, they, they tend to uh, push decisions up to their boss or their boss's boss, rather than recognising that you know they've got the authority to actually do things and make things happen. Yes, from time to time, uh, you will screw something up. You know, we do make mistakes. We learn from our mistakes. We learn from our errors. Uh, the other issue is, you know, there's a high road and, and there's a low road, and well, maybe the low road is a little bit easier, but they both end up in the same place. So, so don't don't always think that there's only one solution or, or one one track or, or one answer uh, to every issue because there's not. But as I said, ha- have more confidence in in your own judgment because your job, you know, the most about your job. You, you know the background, you know the history, you know the scope, you know everything. And uh, don't don't think that your supervisor or manager or general manager or whatever knows more about what you're doing than, than you do. You are the expert. Love it. What a great bit of advice to finish on. Sam, thank you so much for your time. I'm so deeply personally and professionally indebted to you and I'm so grateful for the opportunity to share some of the advice that you've given me and the stories that I've heard over the years and and some new ones with our wonderful audience today. So thank you so much for making the time. Thanks for listening. I hope you feel inspired and have some practical ideas for how you can go and fuel the difference you want to see in your life, organisation or community. If that's a yes, please take a moment to send us feedback, shoot me a tweet at Holly Ransom, leave a review for this coffee pod or head to www.coffeepodswithholly.com and send in your questions and suggestions for future coffee pods. But for now, until our next coffee break, I've been Holly Ransom. Thanks for fueling your difference with me.